Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Turkey Hunt's one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. The Meat Eater Podcast is brought to you by First Light. Whether you're checking trail cams, hanging deer stands, or scouting for elk, First Light has performance apparel to support every hunter in every environment. Check it out at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. Okay, everybody, this episode is dedicated to Doug Dern. Oh. Oh, he's going to eat this up. This whole thing? <laughs> oh, dude. It's Doug Dern's dream. That's because this is a special edition called Ask a Farmer, but it's not any farmer. We're joined by Will Harris, fourth-generation farmer of White Oak Pastures in Georgia, now author of a book, A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, One Farm, Six Generations in the Future of Food. Will Harris is the owner of White Oak Pastures, a holistically managed regenerative ranch and farm in Georgia's semi-tropical coastal plain. You guys raise how many different kinds of animals? Ten. Lay them out for me real Cows, quick. Cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks. And you run your farm like, a, uh, like an ecosystem. It is an ecosystem, Yes. And you live recognizing that. And you were, uh, we're going to get into great detail on this, but you, uh, you guys' family's been on the farm since 1860. Yeah. I'm the, or eight, was it 1860 or 66? 66. I'm the fourth generation. Never left, never sold. You guys just been there. We've been there. My daughters are the fifth, and they've got uh, five little beady children who are the sixth. So the sixth generation is on. But the sixth generation hadn't contributed yet. They don't do nothing. <laughs> they don't do nothing. Well, it's just a testament to kids these days, right? But their parents, they're, they're, uh, they're, their parents are, are producers. Got it. Um, 
our connection, we have the same agent, Mark Gerald. Yeah, he's great. Did Mark find you? He did. He contacted us. That's, that's what happened to me 20 some years ago. And I, and I told him that I couldn't write a book. I didn't know how to read a book. But he, uh, he persisted and found nope, that somebody. Ain't gonna, that ain't going to stop him. No, you don't, don't stop him. He's in it to win it. Man, so when I met Mark, I thought I had it all figured out. I was living in uh, I was living in Wyoming at the time, and I was already writing a book, and and I got a call from my editor at Outside Magazine. She's like, hey, there's this agent looking for you. I was like, shit, I already got an agent. <laughs> and he was persistent, man, and he got a hold of me, and he's basically like, here's how we're going to do this. Yeah. Yeah, same. He hadn't changed a bit. Yeah, and he's like, no. "This is," and I was like, "Oh yeah, maybe someday I will do that." He goes, "No, no, 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 no. We're gonna do it right now, strictly business. Like week one, yeah. this will happen. Week yeah. two, this will happen. Yeah. Week three, this will happen." And I was, I was like, "Oh, this ain't no." I actually told. <laughs> <laughs> this is starting to be like work. <laughs> yeah, I actually told him, "No, thank you. I'm not interested." Really? And then he talked to my daughter, and she was interested. And had me become interested. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mark went to my bachelor party. Did he? I had a week-long bachelor party. Well, I'm not as glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't either. Um, so we're going to get into all that. Uh, and it's going to be big time Ask the Farmer. I got some real farming questions for you. Yeah. Um, um, about land management. Uh, animal welfare, why things, why things were done the way they're done in the agricultural landscape for a long time, why the agricultural landscape changed so much in the mid 1900s, right? Have I got the answer for you? No. (laughs) Why did things, why did ag change so much in the mid 1900s and why are farmers some farmers now beginning to look and think that maybe we had things more figured out in the old days than we do in the modern days and some of the trade-offs. First, we got to talk about a couple quick things. And I'm going to ask you about just general wild, uh, wildlife. Um, I'm a, I'm a cow's not, uh, cow's not condos kind of environmental. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm not, you know what I mean? There's like yeah, this whole yeah. faction of environmentalism that are anti-cow. Mm-hmm. I'm not among them. They're good. Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like, a, I'm, I'm too, I'm much more pragmatic than that. I want to talk about wildlife mm-hmm. on regenerative farms, clean farm practices, dirty farm practices. Right up my alley. Great. Um, we're going to get to all that. Yanni, first, Yanni, you want your daughter got her first buck. My daughter got her first buck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yours after, uh. You kind of gave her first opportunity away to your son. What do you mean? She got mad. Isn't that what happened? No, that's what she likes to think happened. Is not what happened. That's not what happened. I mean, when you told you the story, that's yeah. how I understood it. The buck was kind of getting away. Did I tell this story? Yeah, yeah. yeah you about did. her and yeah, mm-hmm. and as the, a, the buck is kind of getting away, yeah. and as opposed to being like, okay, we're just going to let him go over the ridge. We'll that already ha- we already did that once. We're going to get on him again. That already happened once. Okay, but you could do it How again. How many times you go bump a buck over a ridge <laughs> and go find it again? Listen, I don't know, but but instead you said, Jimmy, shoot him. And and shoot him hadn't even come out of your lips and the gun went off. And what she thought was her buck was now Jimmy's buck. Yeah, but he's kind of a wild bill though, you know? Like if you say get him, he's going to get him. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I understand. 
understand. <laughs> so you took her out again, and she got her first buck. Didn't even let her big brother come. I brought her and her little brother. <laughs> <laughs> I brought her and her little brother out, and we had a great little hunt. And, uh, and on her sixth day, her sixth day of kind of more than that, if you count just camping and traveling, she put in her sixth day of, of actual, like, real good wake up before it gets light out hunting. Mm-hmm. Got a buck. And she was ecstatic. The one mistake I made, um, she hit it good, hitting the lungs. Ran up there too quick. Mm. I should have just said, let's just sit and wait a couple minutes. Oh, it's still because it was still yeah, alive. Then you get up bit. there and it's like, and, you know, I mean, right? Like anything takes a minute to die. Sure. I mean, you know, usually. And she hit it right, th- you know, she hit it through the lungs. Yeah. I should have said, okay, now you wait a minute. Then we'll go up and have a look. And she'd have gone up and been like dead in her doornail. But instead, we hustled right over there and she caught it. And, you know, you know how it all goes. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, this always happens. It's just, it's not, it's like, so it, was that? It, part- I said, normally people wait and they don't even see that it happens, but we came up and it's, it's just, it happens. They're going to breathe for a minute and they're going to expire. And it's not that you did anything wrong. You, you did everything right, but you just witnessed a thing that would normally be out of sight because mm-hmm. it ran over the hill or you wait a minute. She got over it. She was pretty upset. Because she for felt like, like three she or four had minutes. done some ex- Wounded it. extra harm. Yeah. Didn't hit it right. Mm. Because she just thought they'd go like, like in westerns. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy falls off the railing and he just never even twitches. I think that's what she was expecting. Uh, any tears? Oh, yeah. The ones associated with that moment or the tears of getting her first buck? No, tears of that she didn't hit it right. Yeah. And made it suffer. Yeah. But then... I- because Ina started crying a little bit, and I was like, oh, no, what happened? What's going on? And she's just like, I just got, I can't believe I did it, you know, like <laughs> pure joy, you know, but uh, tears of joy. So no, uh, yeah, she, I was texting with Corinne earlier about it, and she's, she said, well, did any mixed emotions? I said, None whatsoever. Just 100%, like, cool as a cucumber, happy, and walked right up to it. And was like, great. Let's take some pictures. Pet it, check it out. No you problem. Know, you know what I've, I, a couple of takeaways. This is fresh in my mind because it was not even 24 hours ago. Is how when kids are around these uh, dead animals, they've seen a lot of them alive. They've seen our kids, a lot of them have seen a lot of them dead, but they go up to them and they are just touching and feeling and checking from one end to the other, mm-hmm. you know, nose to tail. Just like so. And I think, I don't know why, but as adults, maybe it's because, you know, you've already done it Seen a thousand times. And so you kind of skip that part. But I didn't have to tell her to like, oh, take a minute and enjoy the moment. Like it was just naturally, she was just doing it, you know, look at the hide, look at the collar, look how it's t- 10 different colors. But when you stand <clears throat> away from it, it, blends into one and, you know, just all these observations and, you know, my daughter, you know, when she gets going, there's a lot of words coming out of there. <laughs> maybe she's a future scientist. Yeah, artist. We'll we'll see yeah. at at some point. But, My kids um, are always real eager to see what's in the stomach. Oh, and no amount of checking is going to ever convince them that it's the same old. <laughs> <laughs> totally, it's going to look like it's going to look like someone pulped a bunch of cilantro. <laughs> <laughs> she pretty much gutted it herself. I, I I did the I busted open the uh, sternum for her so that it'd be easier for her to see what she was doing. Right, because uh-huh. at first I said, yeah, just reach in there. Grab the trachea, cut it off with your other hand, and yank it all out. 
and she's like looking in there and you know you can't see anything it's going to be all done by hand so then i said all right let me cut it open then you can see what you got going but uh yeah she does the whole thing and she's like all right let's get the heart and the liver so she got that it pointed in the right direction there and it's all said and done buck splayed out letting him drain i'm getting ready to go get the uh of the truck and she's like uh can I cut the stomach open now? <laughs> <laughs> like it's ha- like they have... expect to find like a little person in there or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it's great to see that uh, that curiosity. No, yeah. uh, man, I had so many observations hunting my daughter, but the main one is um, a lot of stuff gets away. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have got away normally. <laughs> No, well, there goes that opportunity. (laughs) Due to what? Due to what? All the things. Oh, just you name it. You name it. It's just a lot. It's a lot lot going on. It's just getting, you know, it's like it's over there and you got to remember this. And and then we did a thing too, dry firing, dry firing on it. On the animal. Just we dry firing everything. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's a great, great thing. Yeah. We saw some, you know, something a doe too far away. We just dry fire on it just to, you know? Yeah, well, I, I, it's just it's anything that you do that's uh, I don't know a skill like that. In the beginning, it seems like it's so complicated. There's so many moving mm-hmm. parts. There's so you know where you and I just will naturally just shift our whole body as you shift behind the gun. But for them, it's just not natural, right? It's it's that, and it's just refining the animal and the scope. And I mean. She's an hour into the hunt. She's like, I think you would have already shot one. I'm like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. Um, the, yeah, there, there's just, there's just a lot, but I think I noticed that too. But at the same time I was watching her yesterday and I'm like, man, her muzzle control is, I don't want to say impeccable, but it's, it's getting there. And just like the way she handles the firearm is getting really good. Like, there's no like looking at the bolt and going, how does this thing work again? Mm-hmm. Right. There's just been enough repetition where it's all yeah. clicking right along and you can see, and even like dealing with the, even though she's never gutted one, she's been part of that enough and she's skinned enough and done all those little pieces that it didn't take us that much longer, you know, than I would have gutted it. I mean, maybe 20 minutes instead yeah, of 10, yeah. but, um, I, you can see, I think down the line, uh, it won't be too long until hopefully if they keep practicing it, that you won't even need to say anything. Just hold a leg, you know? When you get into hunting technique, there's all these things like you can go on and you, you hear people talk about, you know, people, instructional people. They'll be like, oh, there's like fitness, you know? There's marksmanship. But man, there's a lot of other stuff that no one's put a name to and no one talks about, but it's just how to be like, what does a deer look like that ain't going to stop? What's a deer look like that's going to stop in a second? Yeah. <laughs> and you should be ready to shoot it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just all this stuff. You're like, you realize, like, no one's ever put this in the way. Like, no one's ever put in the words. Like, what is a deer's demeanor? Mm-hmm. You know, that deer is heading this way and he's clueless. That deer, <laughs> does is, that, does that deer upset see about us? something that happened a little while ago <laughs> <laughs> and he's kind of getting over it? <laughs> Yeah, I always have a, I don't know what it was, but when I was at hunting last week or the week before, it's like every, every buck 
was kind of like tuned up. And I, every time I'd be like, he sees us. And I'm like, no, he doesn't. He's just, you know, but it was like. He's upset about something earlier. <laughs> right. Or he's just keyed up and he yeah. happens to be looking in that direction. And I happen to be there and you watch him for a minute. And then all of a sudden he's looking somewhere else and he's given that bush the same yeah. look that he just gave me. Yeah, we were getting into that a lot. That deer's looking, she's looking at us. I'm like, well, she is, but she's not. Yeah, right. That's exactly. <laughs> she's looking at something past us. But if you wave your arms right now, she it'll will be, yeah, she be looking, right at, looking at us. <laughs> it, it, it won't be coincidental. I had some other observation I was going to say. Oh, did you carry your daughter's gun? I did not. I see, have. Yeah, okay. In the see, past. See, I'm so much meaner to my boys than my daughter. So I was carrying my daughter's gun. And my older boy found out. And I heard him like he. I heard him be like, "He carries your gun? Are you kidding me?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. I'm nicer to her than I am to you." <laughs> uh, on the, uh, real quick on the subject of land ownership. So, to return to my favorite subject, we've got more mileage out of the Wyoming Corner Crossing case than any other thing to ever happen. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from that podcast. Just text saying how great with the lawyer, it, yeah, with the lawyer, how great it was to hear him lay it all out. You know, a lot of people. I was noticing because you, you, we have the video of that on YouTube. A lot of people watch that on YouTube. The corner crossing lawyer speaks out. Someone wrote in. This a land surveyor wrote in, backing me up on a point. I got one guy taking me to task, and I got one guy backing me up. In response, this is him writing. In response to your recent episode with the lawyer from the Corner Crossers, I think it's important to get a little insight from a land surveyor, my my profession for quite some time now. There's something Steve said in that episode and several other times discussing this issue that cannot be overstated. He continues. And that's that this was a surveyed and verified corner, meaning the much-debated, contentious corner in Wyoming that led to this corner crossing case that who knows could wind up in the u.s supreme court was a certified and verified corner so when these individuals use this ladder to jump corners and stay on public land while crossing over two corners of private land they were doing this on a survey and verified corner this individual this surveyor goes on to say when most of the section corners were set in the 1800s it was marked by either a nearby rock which was then carved and engraved in a specific way, a pile of flat rocks they found and stacked one on another, or they would cut off a branch from a nearby tree and bury that sticking out of the ground and dig four holes around it, one due north, east, south, and west. Many of these original section corners have been replaced with more modern monuments, most often a three-inch aluminum cap on either a pipe or a piece of rebar pounded in the ground. You see these quite often. But others have not. Knowing this, unless you know exactly what you are looking for, and more importantly, where you are looking for it, you are not going to find the section corner. Um, in his career... He's dealt with the buried branches sticking out of the ground and has noted they last about a year or two. (laughs) You think. Also, on Cal's comment of the surveyor's thinking when setting a corner, a surveyor saying to himself, there's no way anyone is going to use this. He says that does happen. 
And I found record of at least one instance where the surveyor quite literally said, about here. (laughs) Surveying sections is supposed to be a perfect grid with lines running true north, south, and east, west, with intersections every 5,280 feet. But that is never, ever the case. Finally, on the comment, he says, I can't remember who said it. Avon X not being 100% accurate to take you to the section corner. I personally have witnessed on X being 40 feet off their section corners. But what he goes on to clarify, and I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase him. This isn't even a non X issue. Your phone yeah, isn't, your, your phone isn't that accurate. Your smartphone isn't really accurate, much better than a 16 foot radius. So for you to be jumping corners based off of your phone or to be trusting fences, there's how accurate is the information and how accurate is the phone. Um, sincerely, a land surveyor. Another guy reached out. I was saying I could always look at a feller and see. Hold on, hold on. I, I got a quick little retort to him. Or, oh, you're going to retort him? Not so much that, but I just wanted someone to clarify this. When I read that, email, I got to thinking, well, if the landowners there have set fences, aren't they in some way saying, this is where I believe this corner is and sort of setting a precedent of where this corner is and has been? They're not? No, I saw a fence the other day that was wildly off because for him to make it on his borderline, like in, in this case, it was to the advantage it was of to the public. the advantage of of to the advantage of was it no 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 sorry we were where BLM came up against the ranch yeah and it was a bunch of it was a bunch of badlands and he owned a bunch of the badlands but just ran it sure along the bench sure. yeah and there was corners in there and it was like and you went up to a thing and and it was just a matter of convenience where you run fences. So I don't think that, I just think that like these things weren't on anyone's mind, you know? No, hundred percent not, but I'm just trying to figure out like in, in cause everybody, cause they're saying, yeah, don't try to cross this corner unless you have, no basically go and have it surveyed. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying if it was, let's say it wasn't Badlands and you're in a prairie and someone has set these, this corner, to the best of their knowledge, can we all just agree that it's to the best of our knowledge and you're going to cross the corner where the corner is? In looking at what these fellers are going through into Wyoming, yeah. I would not make no. any assumptions about anything. <laughs> but I think what Giannis is, what Yanni is saying is that like, if whether that placement of the fence is in actuality uh, the right corner or not, the point is that that landowner, whether it's to the benefit of the public or to the benefit of himself, put something there that is like the physical signifier to anyone who might be thinking to cross that that's right. So it's like the intention behind it, right? You're yeah. not. No, I understand. But if you're going to go into a, a court, in this case, going to Wyoming, and there's a guy saying that he's taking you to civil court over $7 million, mm-hmm. um, I'd like to think that I was on a surveyed corner. And not have an added wrinkle beat, buddy. That that fence, and you can isn't just, even on my corner. You but can isn't just that build. up to the landowner to 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, well, there's two landowners. I mean, the the fence right. thing is mm-hmm. like completely arbitrary. Like you could you could just build, you know, if you owned a ranch, you have every right to build a you know a section of fence wherever you want on it, right? And yeah, this so, corner and wasn't this corner is not even fence that we're talking about. Yeah, and it's, so it's not like it's you can't just assume that because a fence exists, that's where the private landowner believes the boundary is. Like that's a pretty big leap of maybe it's his neighbor's fence. Yeah. Might not even be his fence. Or might be the government's or fence. Or the, the previous owner built the fence and the previous owner didn't know. Just, well, it'll just be saying, interesting to see who they sort of eventually, they're going to have to say, hey, it's someone's responsibility yeah. to get these things surveyed. I can see all kinds of implications. One of the implications I can see down the road is if this, if this goes and it gets like just settled in some outright way. Like, I, I'm not doing any corner crossing because I'm too, uh, it's too, it feels too up in the air. Um, until it's farther settled. No, I'm saying if it ever got settled, if it was just settled and the courts decided and it was litigated and the law of the land was laid out that corner crossing is legal, I would think that like I would be I would be raising money. Um, I would be raising money to s- survey strategic corners, like to 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 find to to mm-hmm. codify in very strategic locations those places but i just keep as people are getting in you know pushing these boundaries i just think it's i keep reminding people that um that where this happened was a surveyed corner and that you can't go by uh you know to really actually be like placing your feet is is very precise have you heard from like any of our game worn buddies here uh in this in montana if the if corner crossing or trespassing is on the rise in, the, in like this hunting season. I haven't heard of anybody prosecuting it this year and there's no way it didn't happen this year, but I haven't heard of it. That'd be good. That'd be a good question. I want to move on though. You fine, Randall? You yeah. yeah. No, there was, there was a case up in, uh, up by Townsend. A corner crossing case. Yeah. There's, and there's some other, you know, there, like some claims were made that the individual had trespassed. It's kind of, I think it was still, the details were fuzzy for a little bit while the, while the legal system sorted things out, I think the tr- the charges were dropped, but that was like in the in the headlines. It was sort of a corner crossing related dispute, but I don't really know enough about it to get into the details. No, I know in this state there's an organization gearing up to fight corner crossing, mm-hmm. and they're uh, they're they're getting ready to spend spend money on a public campaign to turn people off to the idea that you'd be able to corner cross. I have posited, is that the right use of that word? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I can look at a felon and tell if he snores. Now, with with 90% accuracy. Do you think Let's Will try snores? it. Will. Let's try it right here with Will. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I found out recently that I was at an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and they measure your neck. And they're measuring my neck like, like you're at a tailor. Uh-huh. And I said, what are you measuring my neck for? And they're like, it has to do with sleep apnea issues. I'm like, what do you mean? They said a 16-inch neck. A 16-inch neck is more likely to have sleep apnea. Wait, is that like on the smaller end or the larger end? Like 16 I gather it's larger. 16-inch oh, okay. neck. Like around or like? Mm-hmm. 16 yeah. circumference. Yeah. Oh, well, you know your waist measurement from your yeah, pants. Yeah, right. Okay, right. yeah. So um, that's how, yeah, they just put a... But they put a tape around your neck. And I was like, why the hell are you doing that? Will's buttoning his shirt up. 
And they were saying that that's a, that's a, they're trying to, they're looking at how likely are you to have sleep apnea? And they said a six, they take notice at a 16 inch neck. So I thought was really surprising. And just, but it ends there or it goes 16 and up? 16 and up. Got it. Okay. Greater than 16 is like some marker for them to be like, oh, let's ask a bunch of questions about sleep apnea. Average is 15, according to the internet. Now, this guy says, reaching out because Steve mentioned in an episode that he can now look at people and guess if they have sleep apnea or suffer from snoring. It's not all that far off. This is from a dentist, a DDS. While we definitely see a correlation with neck circumference and sleep apnea snoring, one can also see snoring and sleep apnea in the shape of the jaw. Which I didn't. I also didn't know that's what I was looking at. Hmm. It's a theory. I think this is not necessarily Over the past 1,000 years, we have seen that about 25% of the population has seen a gradual decrease in jaw size, both maxillary and mandibular. Mandibular? I think it's mandibular. He also didn't cite the source, but... According to archaeological evidence, 1,000 years... Well, I know, it's getting a little science-y. That really got you, Phil. Well, <laughs> well it's just... It's, it's mainly because Corinne has it in the notes that, like, please say this is just a theory. Well, listen, it's getting a little science-y because... Over the past 1,000 years, we have seen that about 25% of the population has, it's like, um, who, who 1,000 years ago, oh, I guess skeletal remains. Okay. I'm going to take him at face value. He's a, he's a doctor. <laughs> well, DDS, you know. According to archaeological evidence, he goes on, 1,000 years ago, there was much more room for teeth, including wisdom. And there was not as much crowding in teeth as we see now. The working theory is that because we have domesticated the majority of our food supply and have selectively bred for hyper palatable and easily chewed foods, the body no longer needs to build a large lower face to support chewing dense materials. If you're wondering what that is, that's that plain ass boring chicken breast that we get served all the time. I'm finding myself clenching right now. To- <laughs> Accentuate my jaw. Yeah. You don't have to because you chew on elk so much. I can't read like this, though. <laughs> uh, the smaller jaw and increase in overall size of the human. Oh, so, okay. We've gotten bigger. Jaws have gotten smaller. Has created a mismatch. That's interesting. And has pushed the tongue into the back of the throat, thus creating a more collapsible upper airway. This produces snoring and sleep apnea. We treat the disease with either a CPAP or what I do, a mandibular repositioning device. Mm. Hope this helps. Which is a night guard. I wonder if that uh, tongue going farther back into your uh, airway there, if that makes it harder or easier to, um, to uh, what's the term when you're diving and you got to, Oh, clear. Oh, clear. Yeah. Frenzel. Frenzel. This is an argument that if you want to stop snoring in this country, cut your jerky with the grain, (laughs) not against the grain. You know, get in the gym and do whatever, get some, you know, like a, those bands, a resistance band and train your jaw. Yeah, or just uh, put jerky in the gym. Or like mm. when you or when just you clean eat up. the food that Will's producing. <laughs> I, I, I'm just I'm just hypothesizing that 
that may be why y'all talk so funny. (laughs) 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 Nailed it. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health/meateater, but you got to use the promo code meateater. That's promo code meateater, okay? At twc.health/meateater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dugs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dugs' place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do? For your family this spring, you can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using 
Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Okay, last bit of last bit of feedback, and then we're gonna get on to we're gonna give our guests his his due um his at this point overdue allotment of time. Here's my thoughts on why Steve is wrong about gluten allergy and conservatives. Now, I was recently, I have been saying for years, and I've been stating it as though it was a fact, that I felt that, well, no, I, I acted like I had read this somewhere. <laughs> that, that you would never. You read it in your diary. I felt, just by my exposure to the world, that I felt that 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 gluten allergies were, were decided, like, like that left-leaning people were had a far greater likelihood of having gluten allergies. So much so that I didn't bother to look it up. Well, Spencer looked it up, and in fact, I was wrong. <laughs> conservatives are Other more likely facts. to believe in ghosts, also mm-hmm. surprised me, and conservatives are far more likely to order their steak medium rare, and they're no more likely to have a gluten intolerance. <laughs> You're adding but, that up. Listen, no, the <laughs> medium rare pressure. thing, the medium rare thing is overwhelming. Medium rare. But you know, all of like, uh, well, in at least in South Africa, everyone likes their meat cooked. Probably because, so, probably because of food handling. And, you know, I mean, any, anywhere you go in the, in the, can you still say developing world? What are you supposed I, to call it? I think so. Anywhere you go in the I developing world, man, there's a lot of overcooked stuff. Yeah, for a reason. Yeah, I mean, I Where don't do know. Where do liberals why, but... fall on the meat temperature scale? No, no, no. He just said what he, the most common. So in in the most common ordered steak is medium rare, but it winds up being that like like conservatives are sixty four. Oh, do you remember what it was? Sixty four percent more likely, likely to, to order a like medium, medium rare, rare steak. Anyways, this guy goes on to say, I didn't know this. He says there's a conspiracy theory floating around, or no, no, there is a conspiracy theorist level correlation. I got, I got to unpack that sentence. Yeah, Corinne's trying to throw in hyphens to make it make more sense. <laughs> yeah. Just to put some, she's Just randomly throwing some... hyphens in there. There is a conspiracy theorist. No, was, you, you did the hyphen in the right yeah, place. Yeah, right. I'm just trying to clarify. There is a conspiracy theorist level correlation between the consumption and exposure to glyphosate Commonly marketed as Roundup. Is that is that fair, Will? Did I say that right? That glyphosate is Roundup? It is Roundup, yes. And is Roundup uh, the only widely available glyphosate? Or is it that just that's just a product name? They had the they had the uh the the uh, patent. patent on that molecule for a long time. Okay. And I think there may be some knockoffs, but yes, they own that market. So, gly- like Roundup, you would say is glyphosate, yeah, which used to be Monsanto, is now Bayer. Got it. Bayer. There is a okay. I'm gonna read that part again. <laughs> to my understanding, the more exposure to Roundup you have, now this, now we are way into areas where I am not here to verify any of this. <laughs> I'm not saying it's just because I'm not saying it's from a legal exposure standpoint. I'm just saying it's from like a, I don't know. This this gentleman, uh, Waylon. <laughs> <laughs> of course, this guy's name is Waylon. I love this guy. To my understanding, the more exposure to Roundup you have, the higher chance of developing a gluten allergy. 
Then he goes on to say, if we are making far-fetched correlations, to which I would say, are we? (laughs) (laughs) If we are making far-fetched correlations, then it is easy to assume those in rural areas, farmers, land managers, and general folks living around farms and ranches, are at a higher exposure rate of glyphosate due to farming practices and availability of the chemical. I once walked into our local ag office to get some mean chemical that you needed a permit to buy. The nice, this is not me, this is the gentleman that wrote in. The nice lady asked me what account to put it under. And after listing four different farmers, we found one that had a permit. (laughs) After I paid, I called my buddy whose account it was on to tell him what I did. And his response was, I got a barrel of it. You should have come and gotten what you needed from me. To wrap up the correlation, if we believe, (laughs) if he says, if we, like bringing me into this, if we believe that Roundup causes gluten intolerance, and by which he means if he believes, Roundup is widely available for rural folks. Most rural folks are conservatives. Then it's easy to see more conservatives would have a gluten allergy. My source on my theory. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> his mother-in-law, mm. of course. No, one person. <laughs> <laughs> One subject. My my source on my theory. My mother-in-law spent 20 years living in a bottom surrounded by crop farms. Now, this is the this is the best detail of this whole letter. Their gar- this is incredible. <laughs> what a segue. They a would segue. need to tarp their garden when the surrounding farmers were spraying crops because wind drift would kill the garden. He goes on to say, she has a gluten allergy. What else could have caused that? (laughs) And she goes on to say that in terms of her political leanings, she has three flags. A DU flag, old glory, and a Trump 2020. (laughs) Case closed. That's the, he should just have sent that. Instead of sending it to us, he should have sent that to uh, the Journal Science. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Or the USDA, maybe. He could have gotten that. Uh, he should send that to a peer-reviewed. So again, you know, somebody should call his attention to the fact that golf courses, municipalities, parks, tremendous amount of Roundup is used in the non-ag sector. Incredible. There's their labels for it. Mm-hmm. They're not ag labels. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure more of it's used in the fields, but a lot of it's used in municipal situations. Since we're on that subject, uh, let, let's talk about... Um, I want to ask you some questions about herbicides. Uh, just on the thing around it, I had once had to tell me a guy tell me, and you might be able to tell me how true this is, that when Roundup became available, um, its promise was that it was that it was less toxic than coffee. Absolutely. And that someone just, told me that you that, that that people would take a sip. I've seen the Monsanto rip take a sip. Yes. What? Okay, so that's true. In the early 70s, yes. Yeah. I heard that was true, and that was I the see. thing. Is like, if it was dangerous, then would I do this? <laughs> oh, no. Well, but nobody really I... worried about it being dangerous in that era, but mm-hmm. they would do it just to show how safe and uh, benign it was. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> I remember it. And you probably used it in your career quite a bit, huh? Oh, yes, a lot. And not without gloves or masks or goggles or any of the covering. You know, we, it was just, 
Matter of fact, I was in the custom spraying business for a period of time when I was uber industrial, spraying crops. And I had people hired that sprayed Roundup and other herbicides, insecticides, pesticides. You know what side means, right? Infanticide, fratricide, homicide, homicide, kill, kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know where we ought to start besides Roundup is I think we should start with the history of you guys, your farm. Uh, that'd probably be a smarter place to start because you made a very deliberate. You brought your family farm through a very deliberate transition. Can you lay out the trajectory of your family farm over time? Sure. And and how it naturally evolved and then how it evolved somewhat forcefully under your tenure. So my great-grandfather came to that farm in early county, Georgia, in 1866 and farmed it, followed by his son, my grandfather, who farmed it. And they would have farmed, you know, we don't know too much about their, the way they farmed other than just anecdotal, what people did in those eras. But it would have been uh, uh, multi-species with a lot of, uh, certainly without dependence upon chemistry. Mm -hmm. My dad took over the farm, he was born in 1920, he took over the farm in 1945 after the World War II. And that was when farming really changed. My dad was part of the leadership in our part of the country that industrialized, commoditized, centralized agriculture. It was very successful with it. and went from a monoculture of a lot of different species of plants and animals to a monoculture, a monoculture today of, of only cattle, a polyculture monoculture. Your farm went poly to mono. Poly to Mono, yeah. my great-grandfather and grandfather would have had a lot of species. Mm-hmm. So my dad ran the farm all his career. Uh, I was born in 1954, went to the University of Georgia in 1972, majored in animal science. My dad industrialized the farm. I came home and further industrialized the farm and ran it that way for 20 years. And uh, it was financially comfortable. Uh, in the mid-90s, for a number of reasons, I started to rethink things pretty quickly and did. And for the last 25 years, I've been running it in a manner that, with, without intentionally copying them, but a manner that resembles what my great-grandfather and grandfather did a hell of a lot more than it resembles what my dad and I did. Mm-hmm. What was the... What was the, the, the trigger? Like, what, what were the things you were seeing on your family property that, that prompted you to, to rethink your approach to agriculture? And then also, you might as well define define your approach to agriculture. I mean, we can say stuff like regenerative agriculture, and, yeah. and to be honest with you, I hear that all the time. It took me a long time to figure out, like, kind of what it meant. Yeah. And you, I've even heard you, I, I was reviewing some of the talks you've given, and I've heard you say that you anticipate that term being hijacked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that it'll become like other catch, other agricultural catchphrases that that have a sort of that their meaning becomes diminished yeah. as it gets appropriated. Yeah. Today we call it regenerative. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has not been co-opted much yet, and to me that means emulation of nature. Okay. Uh, the the natural cycles. Uh, the 
industrial agriculture that I used to use, running a monoculture of only cattle, breaks those cycles. Uh, uh, we, uh, I ran the, the uh, uh, farm as a monocultural cattle industry for 20-something years and was financially comfortable. I got dissatisfied with it uh, when I, I came to see the, the damage I was doing. My, uh, the, the admission is that uh, while I was a very industrial cattleman, I always opted on the high side. If the label rate said two cc's per hundred, I probably gave them three cc's per hundred pounds of body weight. Okay. If it said a pint to the acre, I probably put a quart to the acre. And I guess you mean like fun, a, if one's good, two's better. One's good, two's better, and three's really good. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked for me, but. Because I was so heavy-handed, I came to see the unintended consequences. And it uh, <clears throat> kind of strangely, it manifested itself on the animal welfare side. Mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in 1995, I was loading a, a truckload of cattle to ship to the West for feeding. We okay. did that a lot. These would have been 500-pound calves. So there would have been about a hundred of them on the truck. So they were going to be on that truck going to Nebraska for thirty hours. I was going to guess Nebraska. That's where, that's, that's where yeah. these were going. I, although that's not the only state we fed yeah, in, yeah. That's, that's where these were going. That was about as far as we went. It took thirty hours to get to Nebraska. You're basically moving them to the corn. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. Che it's cheaper to move the cows to the corn than the corn to the cows. Yeah. Oh. So they would have been on there for 30 hours with the ones on top urinating and defecating on the ones on the bottom without food or water or rest. And I had done it dozens of times. But all of a sudden that morning, it just didn't feel good. <clears throat> so uh, it made me start thinking about all the things I was doing that were financially working for me but needed rethinking. Mm-hmm. And the animal welfare, which is, that was an animal welfare issue, quickly led me to the environmental side. I mean, it was just like, if this is wrong, this is wrong. So I fairly abruptly ceased using chemical fertilizers, pesticides on my farm, uh, uh, dewormers, antibiotics, honosphores on the cows. I only had cattle at the time. And uh, tried to make a living like that, and it was not nearly as uh, financially rewarding, but it felt a lot better. And it started me on this journey that I've been on for 25 years, and it's really been good for us in many ways. We, 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 we probably have not made as much money, probably left some money on the table that we mm -hmm. could have made if we'd operated more industrially and within the system. But the land is way better off. The, the, the uh, livestock is way better off. I think we've got a more, it may not be a more profitable business, but I think it's more re uh, resilient. And two of my three daughters and their spouses came back, and I'm pretty sure they would not had I continued to farm industrially. Mm. So it's been way more good than bad. They might not have been drawn to it. 
No, they would not have been. You know, they, uh, you know, I never wanted to do anything but run that farm. But my daughters were raised the way people raised children in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it, it was it was about ballet and gymnastics and karate and soccer and softball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, uh, they would not have come back to the farm. Uh, here's a, let me give you a question about raising cattle. Um, I've picked up a handful of bit. I know a little bit, and primarily I know stuff about raising cattle just from hunting on people's farms and ranches in the yards. Mm-hmm. Go like, so what's that and that? You know, I have zero background in ag. I've just picked stuff up through exposure. But when we talk about the, the system, um, You've now you're now capturing the entire system, meaning you've got cows that'll they'll be bred and born on your farm, and you'll sell the burger yeah. at your store. And we have a, and we have a slaughter plant on the farm yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're running the whole damn deal vertically and great. Let's go back to when when you were a boy. Um, tell me what portion of that process you were capturing as a boy, just so people can see, see a little bit of this. What portion of a cow's life were you in charge of mm-hmm. as a boy? And then what portion are you guys doing now at White Oak Pastures? <clears throat> My dad and, and later me had uh, uh, mama cows only. That's the only uh, crop we produced was cattle. We had mama cows. We bred them. Initially, naturally, later on through artificial insemination, we gave birth to the calves and we weaned them at about six months of age and shipped them to the feedlot area like we just discussed. Mm-hmm. And then now, talk about the transformation you've had, just just in, just in terms of cattle. Okay, just in terms of cattle, we, we've gone from being a little snippet in the huge beef production system to be in a tiny, tiny little beef production system. Uh, we own the mama cows. We have the calves. We f- finish the calves on grass only, grass, hay, before, uh, no corn. And then we slaughter them, and then we sell them. We sell them some wholesale to grocers, some through our little store. we got a little restaurant. And then increase. Oh, so you're selling cooked product, too. We, yeah, it's small. Yeah, well, it's. It's three meals a day, seven days a week, but it don't feed that many people. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, we're, but it's possible to, for a person to go and eat a burger. It's probable. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we got a- To eat a burger that was produced right there. Yeah, we got 170 employees, and it's 12 miles to the nearest place to eat, and it's a fast food place. So we, you know, we have- I put in the food service to feed my employees, but we've expanded it. It's not big, but yeah. it's, we we do cook twenty one meals a week, and it's good. Um, what uh, the economics changed completely, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I went back and looked. Not I, I never from the time I graduated from the University of Georgia in nineteen seventy six until I started changing. The way we raised cattle in 1995, I never lost money. I paid taxes every year. Now we didn't make we didn't make a hell of a lot of money, but we lived comfortably uh-huh. and we were consistently profitable. Uh, I had a number of years of losses when I was transitioning over 
And I was very fortunate. Uh, I had inherited a nice, paid-for farm and made a little, a little money of my own. So we were able to, to survive it, but we had to survive it. And then what do you guys do? Uh, talk about how you compost. Um, I understand this to be true from your book. Do you guys, instead of sending shit off to a rendering plant, you guys are you guys are handling that too? Yeah, we are. Yeah, so we we generate. Like how does that even? Like, how, how does that work? I mean, I could picture dragging it out, and letting it rot. Mm, you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't picture even. I can't. I don't picture what it even like composting a yeah. carcass. It's very different. So, well, of course, well, there are some whole carcasses because when we have death loss, we comp- compost them too. But most of it is packing plant waste. Uh-huh. That's what USDA calls it. That would be eviscerate, hooves, feathers, gut fill, whatever's not marketable. Skulls, uh, central nervous system tissue, which we can't harvest. Yep. Brain, spinal cord. So, uh, but we generate about nine tons a day, five days a week. Man, we compost it. Uh, we nine we, tons a day. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, that sounds like a lot. Well, it is oh, a lot. yeah, it, it is. So yeah. You pick up a cow's stomach. <laughs> well, yeah, and, it's, and, see it's, that adds up. Yeah, and yeah. it's a lot of moisture. I mean, there's as far as dry material, it's probably eighty percent moisture. I see. Hmm. So you you got to deal with it, but yeah. you know, that's. So we do compost. Composting is taking a nitrogenous material. Animal weight remains and a carbaceous material in our case would be peanut shells or wood chips or whatever people give us that's not homeowners but do you know the ass plant or the peanut shelling plants and there are rules you oh go- when you say you mean the tree the the mm-hmm. big power line tree company yeah Asplin? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, I, know that, I know that outfit yeah they they uh, they dump those wood chips on you know, we we make it available not for anybody but for people that we trust to dump carbaceous material there can yeah. I tell you a quick little side tidbit mm-hmm. about asp so you mm-hmm. know they do those big power line gas line mm-hmm. projects um I used to sell firewood. And when they would go through a big landowner, um, I'd go in there and, and broker a deal to get all that, and I'd sell all that shit. That's, that's the same thing I did. They just leave the it chips. laying, man, like mostly cut up. And I would go in there and buck it into 16-inch lengths and split it and sell it. Yeah. And people would be glad I did it. Well, I'm glad I found them, too. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are ratios of nitrogenous material and carbaceous material that you mix. There are rules you go by. You, uh, We have a, a, a thermometer with a five-foot uh, handle pr- probe on it. We stick in there. Oh, my guys stick it Are up. you grinding up the cow? Not anymore. I used to. Uh, I, I have a grinder, but we, we, we struggle to keep it going. And really, the, except for the bones, uh, it's, it's the... the it, it it comes apart. The bones become very porous. I should tell you this. It takes six or seven weeks to compost that animal material. But it has been recommended to us that we let it sit for a year. If you let it sit a year, the compost becomes less bacterial and more fungal, and it's better for the land. Hmm. So we let it sit a year, and not only does it become more fungal and it's better fertilizer, 
for those bones become porous. You got you got to give this to me like um, you got to give this to me like you're you're like like you're gone out of town and you're explaining to me on the phone what I need to do. Okay, <laughs> so my guys put the carbaceous material, peanut shells or wood chips, okay, into long windrows. Okay, on the surface, not subsurface. Okay, no, 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 on the surface. Okay, yeah. And by the way, we move this operation around the farm. You don't want it to sit in one place too long. I fear it might be too much at Mm -hmm. some point. So we move it around every year or so. But we, uh, uh, the animal material goes onto a little dump truck. Right out of the plant. Right out of the plant. Okay. Every, Every day, maybe twice a day, at least once a day. And they'll take it up to the composting area, wherever that happens to be right Mm -hmm. then. Mm hmm. And they'll uh, take the uh, a big caterpillar front end loader mm-hmm. and build kind of a bed of the uh, carbaceous material to back the truck up and dump it in. So okay. it's, it's dumped on twenty four inches of carbaceous material, peanut shells, wood chips. Mm-hmm. Got it. They dump it, then they cover it up with more of the same. Again. 18, 24 inches. Okay. And here, here's a little fun fact. Uh, if we do a good job covering it up, you never smell it and you never see uh, buzzards or vultures. That's my next question. <laughs> my yeah. next question is going to be about buzzards. I beat you to it. All right. So let me tell you. Sometimes something happens, you know, the load is torn up or whatever, and we can't get it covered up as quickly as we want to. When that happens, you can see those vultures, red-headed or black-headed, just stacking up there. So it's important we keep it covered, which we do. And that's and then you let it sit a year. Well, we you you've got to you've got to mechanically stir it and take temperatures and record the temperatures. But as long as we do that, in six eight weeks it will be composted, and then we let it sit a year. We would pile it up, let it sit for a year. Then we spread it on our pastures. I've got a, a, a spreader truck with a 48-inch bed chain. So big bones can come out the back of it. We put two tons to the acre, and it is seriously, it, it, it's magic. It's, ma- it's good. You're feeding the huh. micro. You're feeding the mic. That compost is feeding the microbes in the soil. This is important. It's feeding the plant that feeds the animal. It's turned into feces or put back through the plant. So it's, 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 it's like magic. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds 
to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. When something has gone through the process of being composted in those first six weeks, exactly what happens? It goes from what to what? It, it goes from guts and wood chips to compost, which is a uh, stable, not hot anymore, stable, moisture-absorbing plant food that contains nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium. And in this case, a lot of phosphorus and, and, and uh, calcium because of the bones. I mean, it's... it's it's what is supposed to happen. You know, the buffalo dies and rots, and it grows grass. What are the what are the temperatures you're 
getting in those piles as it's working. Yeah, 150 degrees. And if it's oh. not if it's not hot enough, they stir it and oxygenate it. Mm-hmm. Take the front end loader. They make some really great expensive machines that do that. I'd yeah. love to have one. I ain't got one. But does that was, does that process costing you money or saving you money? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Which pile yes. is bigger? Yes. <laughs> no, it, it, it uh, well, it, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do for a lot of reasons. Sure. No, I, I, I love it. I mean, I love it like just as a non-farmer. I love the sounds of it. I'm just curious, like, is it like a, is it a cost sink or is it a no, great way to fertilize? It's a great way to fertilize. It, it, it costs money. We've got some equipment and a couple of guys, you know, dedicated to it. And that has a cost. But the... uh Plant fertility, land fertility that I get out of it, you can't even, you can't, or you couldn't afford to buy it. Hmm. Got it's, it. it's wonderful. It's great. Our, we, we can talk about this later, but the, the organic matter in the, my soil on my farm has gone from a half a percent to over 5%. Huh. Ten, 10x more carbon in the soil. Hmm. And that, that, no shit. I think, yeah. No shit. I think or some shit, but when most, do you, most of the plant <laughs> When do you think that Okay, let's say we knew that that if you went back to um if you went back to 1923. Okay. So we go back a century. Yeah. You think that it might have been around 5? I don't know. I mean, that's a great question. I've asked some people Huh? But I don't know anybody that was doing much carbon sampling in 1923. No, I guess. I mean, you wouldn't even have thought to look, right? Somebody somewhere probably knows, but the practices that my dad and I did, the tillage and uh, use of nitrogen fertilizer, maybe pesticides, I don't know if that affects it much, but certainly tillage and use of nitrogen fertilizer burns up carbon in the soil. Just, 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 just makes it go away. So when you've got soil that's a half a percent or organic model, which mm-hmm. is what mine had gotten to. It's a dead mineral medium. So let me tell you this. Uh, 1% organic model, I'm told, will absorb a one-inch rain event. So okay. on an acre of land, a one-inch rain event is 27,000 gallons of water. So my farm now will absorb, I'm, I believe, Five times twenty-seven, five percent organic matter times twenty-seven thousand gallons. That's a lot of water, and we get a lot of water. I'm in, uh, I'm about eighty miles from the Gulf of Mexico. You know, we get fifty-two inches a year, <laughs> and a lot of it's in big rain events. Not unusual to have a five-inch rain, but I got five percent organic matter. Well, that don't mean it all soaks in because it comes too fast. But if it came slowly enough, we'd absorb it all. Hmm. And the benefits of that compared to soil that's minerally, that pretty much what just like sifts through water and. You no, know, the water just percolates yeah. right. You know, I'm, I'm in the Gulf Coast, the Gulf Coastal region, which is an ancient seabed. Mm-hmm. So the soil is pretty sandy compared to what you've got here. And just it won't hold the water, and it doesn't have the minerals. We we put of course we're putting a lot of minerals out there because of all that, the the bones and whatnot. It it's one of the 
best things I ever stumbled onto. You know, we we uh, when I first built the slaughter plant, uh, getting rid of eviscerate you know, animal waste was a problem. You know, we had to pay somebody to come get it, and I didn't have a big enough plant for them to come every day. So that meant I was going to have to refrigerate it. I just had a lot hmm. of problems. Well, you were refrigerating that stuff? No, no, I never did. Oh. We, we, I, I was going to have to. Got it. The pe- people do refrigerate it. Of course, it takes a lot of room, and it's nasty. You know, it's it's a lot of, it's not, the actual blood is not in it. We drain the blood separately, which we also use as fertilizer, but it's it's different. Hmm. But there's a lot of manure, a lot of fresh flesh, and a lot of, you know, just, just there's still blood in the cars. How, uh, walk me through moving just from beef production into producing poultry and other red meats. Um, was that because you thought it'd be fun, or did you need to do that to try to hit the same finances? Like you could you couldn't make it work with beef. B. So, uh, but it wasn't just financial. I mean, it was it was certain financial. Everything I do is financial because I got to make it work. Uh huh. But uh, when I changed from the industrial production model that I was deeply entrenched in to this model I'm in now, uh, I, I I didn't realize I was going to have to add other species, but I did. You know, I, I started having weeds uh, that I you know that I previously I sprayed it with gray zone P and D, which is another. Herbicide that we didn't talk about. Uh, you know, I, I, if I had insects, I sprayed it. You know, I, I used the, the, all the sides. Uh, to just get I, what you wanted out of the land and nothing else. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so you, you know, what we probably will talk about eventually here is monocultural production. Mm-hmm. Monocultural production is, is bad. It's what modern food production is based on. But Nature abhors a monoculture. Nature, I mean, I don't believe you've been all over the world. I don't believe you can name an ecosystem in the world that's a monoculture. I don't think it exists in nature. You know, nature wants a smorgasbord of animals and plants and microbes living in symbiotic relationships with each other. And that's what we try to do. But I didn't know that back then. Mm-hmm. So I was going to have, I was going to continue my monoculture of cattle. I was just going to give up those technical tools that we, I keep naming. And I found out that I couldn't do it. That you know the weeds came and smothered my grass. First of all, the grass that I planted was Tifton eighty-five Bermuda grass, which is a super hybrid. Uh, Bermuda grass bred by the University of Georgia that requires incredible amounts of nitrogen to live. Now, it grows like crazy, but just takes a lot of nitrogen. And when I quit putting chemical nitrogen out there, I started losing that stand. You know that term? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then all kind of crap came. And instead of using Grazone P and D to to kill the crap, I I didn't have that anymore. So we added sheep and goats, which are ruminants like cattle. Because you needed something to eat all that junk. That's right. Correct. Huh. And then later I added poultry. And of course, poultry's tough now. We're struggling with poultry. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. But we. Uh, uh, What's tough about poultry? Being able to charge enough to make it worthwhile? Yeah, that. 
So my beef probably cost about 30% more than industrial beef. Mm-hmm. We could argue about it, but it's, that's close. My poultry probably costs 300% more than industrial wow. poultry. Wow. Because when we, the smaller the species, the more handily it lent itself to industrialization. So when we industrialized cattle, which my dad was part of that movement, put them in big 100,000 head feedlot. He never had a 100,000 head, but they, they, they do. He had mm-hmm. a, a, a 500 head feedlot. Put them in those feedlots and, uh, uh, you know, and, and take cost out of production. So you know, with, with poultry, they're so small, they lent themselves to that industrialization. You can put 30,000 of them in a chicken house, and one guy can probably handle X chicken houses mm-hmm. because it's highly mechanized. So we just took so much cost. I was in Boulder, Colorado at the Boulder Rama Hotel years ago. <clears throat> Boulder Rama? And how you say it? I don't know. Something like that. This is the Cowboy Hotel there. Hmm. Kind of a landmark. And I ate supper there. And I had just built my poultry business and spent a million, million point something, $1.7 million dollars on the processing plant. And it wasn't working financially. And I was worried about it. And I was waiting on, my, waiting on them to bring me my supper. Y'all eat dinner. We eat supper. <laughs> no, I grew up eating supper. Yeah, yeah. I had, listen, man. I had to make a decision when I started college. Mm-hmm. I had to train myself to stop saying supper because I noticed that no one said that. <laughs> we have a different. Co- we, we, I had to be like we, we, we had the same dinner. college experience. We had different decisions. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the University of Georgia with a bunch of my buddies, and and I mean, just seemed like as soon as we got there, they say, "Hey, you guys want dinner?" <laughs> What what happened to y'all want supper? So I dug in a little deeper. <laughs> no, yeah, it's so funny. I don't know, man. I grew up in a weird little supper corner of the. Did, Yanni, did you guys say dinner or supper? We did not say dinner. We said vacaringas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, all that's over different. the Midwest, there's supper clubs. Supper clubs. That's yeah, what I was thinking. So of. It, it can't be that. We done it. We done it noon every day. Mm-hmm. We so well, we definitely didn't do that. We had breakfast, lunch, and then no. you have supper. What's what's supper time? Breakfast, yeah. dinner, supper. So okay. that's hmm. And we still do. So what was the first? Have you ever had lunch? <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't like, I didn't like it. <laughs> That's some bitch. No, but I'm on, yeah. like, he eats two at, dinners a day. At what point in your life did you realize I'm, that there's this other thing called lunch, which is the same thing I mean, as dinner I, for you? I mean, I could read and write. I knew what he was talking about. I, just, <laughs> I, I, I talk real slow. I think pretty slow, but I put that dental thing together. <laughs> <laughs> so. Anyway, I lost my train of thought. You were you were had just spent one point something million so on a poultry I, place, I, and you had ordered up some poultry in a restaurant. Or I, no, you had ordered your dinner. You're waiting on your supper. I'm waiting on my supper. In the, in the boulder was, They had they had uh, menus uh, framed from like 1923 or something. I uh-huh. got a, I got a picture somewhere in my phone, and it said beef plate, beef dinner, probably. <laughs> uh, ninety nine cent pork dinner ninety nine cent chicken dinner a dollar thirty cents. Oh, so 
you know, at some point in time, before before we industrialized, we took all the costs out. But yeah. now, now that would say thirty nine dollars, <laughs> yeah, thirty seven dollars, nineteen dollars, yeah, right, something like that. <laughs> so we, uh, uh, anyway, that's uh, 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 we 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 struggle with poultry. The the definitely- so that was like when you saw that thing though. It That's hit it. you something about the the the, I, the, 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 the out of whackness of where we've gotten with cheap poultry. He's, he's one of say, Shit, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> I wish I hadn't built it. I wish I hadn't built that plant. And you know, and I, we're, we're fixing to we, we're cutting back on our poultry because we have lost so much money. I still want to do it, but I'm not sure how it's going to look. But so you I, haven't turned it around? No, no. And you can't find a market that will. That will pay enough to keep it going. Not on enough birds. I tell you something else. I don't think I'm a very good poultry farmer. I'm a I'm a I'm a, I'm a really good beef guy. You know when I got when I when I moved from beef to sheep, that was the first species I bought. I said, you know, they just like little cows. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> They're not like little cows. But it's hard. So that, you know, I, but I, I we got reasonably good and hired some people to help us. Mm-hmm. Then they got ready to put goats out there because, you know, goats and sheep are both small ruminants, but sheep eat forbs, goats eat scrub for the most part. You, know, you need both of them. So I got goats. I said, you know, I've learned how to run sheep. I can run goats. <laughs> so then we got. Birds, and I didn't know how to do that, and hogs, I didn't know how to do that, and I'm still not. I don't think I'm real good at it. But is the hogs making money? Yeah, yeah, hogs are making money. Is goats making money? Yeah, yeah, yes. Sheep, you know. And the reason I'm, the reason I'm, uh, the answer is yes, but the reason I'm not saying hell yeah is (laughs) we, you know. In a in a farm like ours, that, uh-huh. where everything is integrated and working together, it's really hard to identify a single line. Oh, mm-hmm. so let's let's talk about the difference in linear and cyclical. Okay, can we do that? Yeah, please. <clears throat> Most businesses are very linear. You know, just next, 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 next. A farm is meant to be cyclical. It's close to nature. You know, for the inputs and it spent it goes around and around the waste stream coming off a, a, a cyclical business like a farm is a very small arrow mm-hmm. but it, the complexity of it is it's really hard to know so I, I told you I'm losing a lot of money on poultry and I am don't believe it talking to my accountant but he's not accounting for the additional fertility that bird manure puts out. All the, the feathers and carcasses that I, that, that's an extra income stream that's not showing up on my financials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it gets very difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there are reasons there are a lot of, of uh, cyclical uh, farms that are on the stock exchange. You know, it's a, it's, you know you, it, it doesn't manifest itself in monthly reports or quarterly reports or annual reports. It manifests itself generationally. Help me understand that. Say that again. So most linear businesses, okay. uh, 
you know, you can pull a monthly report or a quarterly report or an annual report and get a pretty good indicator of how your business is doing financially, economically. Oh, I understand what you're saying. In a farm, I may show I'm losing money, but if I'm moving it from a half percent organic model to five percent organic model, it's not on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I understand. If my herd went from being uh, well, you probably could report the numbers. I don't, but you could. But the the productivity of your herd doesn't show up on that. No, I understand. Uh, I, I can just that all that stuff's not getting captured. D- dozens of you're things. rehabilitating the landscape, future generations. That's not showing up in your quarterly report, and it manifests itself as wealth generationally. We we our we got a little management team. I used to run that farm. Absolutely, you. Autonomous, just me. Uh-huh. And as it grew, we've we've brought other people in management, and we have a meeting uh, once a week, Thursday afternoon, in my office, and we talk about things we want to do, and it never pays off in the month or quarter or year. It's all very long term, very generational, and I I, I, I I love that, but it's very problematic. If since you're selling all the stuff that you produce, and you know how many acres you got, mm-hmm. you kind of have a rare. And I know this goes against a little bit of what you were just saying that you don't do a quarterly report, but you probably wind up with a kind of rare glimpse for an ag producer into um, this acreage spins off this many dollars worth of food. Because it doesn't get lost in some broader equation. Meaning if you grow corn and you're selling corn for ethanol and you're selling corn for feed, um, you're never, you would never answer the question like, oh, no, my corn helped produce X gallons of um, ethanol gasoline and my corn helped produce X pounds of beef down the road. But at the end of the year, you, you know. Like, like, you know how many dollars worth, how many units, how, however the hell you want to measure it. No. You know what came off that place. Yeah, we, we do. I mean, we, we know that. We got that. We got, I, mean, I, got a, I, got I mean, that's got to be an interesting number. Do you, is, does that number, does that ratio, as you've become better and learn this, has that, like, dollars of offput per acre of land, have you gotten better at it? Yes. Yes. A lot better. And I can... I mean, I don't even need to look at those financials. I can tell that riding around in my Jeep. I mean, it looks better. I mean, it just, I, mean I, I can. I mean, yeah. it, lo- it looks better. Um, Years ago, I was with my friend Kevin Murphy down in Kentucky, and we were driving around hunting cottontail rabbits. And he was telling me um, it was going to be a good day of hunting because we were going to an Amish farm. And he said, that's where the game is at. The game is on the Amish farm. And he pointed to a number of farming practices. And this is going to sound like horror. I don't mean, no. it's going to sound like I'm generalizing. He had a couple, he, you just got there, it looked different. He's like, the practices are different. The equipment used is different. The philosophy is different. Um, they're, they're, they're hell on predators. They have dirty fence rows. It's just different. And you go there. And, it, and all the time running around, man, the only quail we saw 
Heck yeah. Was on that Amish farm. <laughs> and he, he'd point around and be like, that, that, that. But you just knew when you got there. You're like, wow, it is a different looking farm. All right, so uh, absolutely. Yeah, it speak might, to that a little bit. Because like yeah. you, you'll, you'll have the vocabulary for it. Well, so, so uh, there are one of, the, one of the most beneficial creatures on my farm is a dung beetle. It's a beetle that uh, uh, is flighted beetle is drawn to fresh manure, particularly cow manure. And when the dung beetle gets there, it it uh, somehow gathers the most nutrient-dense part of the feces and that fresh, always when it's fresh. If it's been there a while, they don't go to it. And it digs a vertical 18-inch shaft into the ground, about as big as that pencil. And the dirt comes up in the top of the Manure, and it packs. It lays its eggs in the bottom and packs that tunnel with the most nutrient-rich part of that manure. Huh? I know the animal, but I didn't know they did that. Oh man, it's wonderful. I mean, you could pay someone to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guess what? We saw dung beetles when I was a kid. I didn't see them anymore because if you give cattle wormer to kill the worms in the system. It's toxic to the dung beetle when they lay the eggs and mm. the feces. Oh, no kidding. Really? Yeah. Mm. So when I saw dung beetles, I can, I, remember, I, can I, know, I, I know right where I was. I was driving along. I saw the dirt at the top of that fresh cow manure, and I slammed on brakes and backed up, and it was dung beetles. I got, you know, yeah, there he is. And now I got a lot of them. And it they will it, stay close to your mic. Stratify so. it keeps the fertility. Oh, stay from, close to your microphone because uh, Phil's going to get mad at you. Oh, right. It uh, sorry about that. It keeps the nutrients from stratifying. You know, just being on the top mm-hmm. where, the, where the manure goes. Yeah, the water can go down in those holes. Hmm. It's, I mean, it's just and the horn flies and face flies, which are a horrible blood sucking insect for cattle. Raised in that fresh cattle manure, that's where they lay their eggs. Two, when they those dung beetles aerate it, you don't get the the uh, horn flies, the face flies production. So it's like it's like a gift from God in terms of insect control, fertility, land management. We killed them and, and spent money to buy cattle worm to kill them. And we and, and the list, list goes on and on and on. Like there's dozens of technology products that I spent money for that that did more harm than good. You know that's that's the way I really think that's the way that works in agriculture. I'm not speaking about other other areas. I mean, I, I got a, I had the first drone of anybody I know, and we own about our third, either third or fourth one. I love. I'm not opposed to technology. That's a good cell phone I threw down there because it kept beeping. I, I love. I mean, I love technology, but technology in a complex system does not work well. In a complicated system, it works great. So we have to very judiciously decide. Hmm. Uh, when you moved away from dewormer, did you move away from? So you don't do any kind of hormones on your. Mm-mm. We don't, and that was the Im- that was the implant hormone, right? Yeah, mostly. It, it, uh, there are a number of them, but the most common one goes in the skin behind the ear, 
and it slowly releases over about a used to be a hundred days. I hadn't used it for a long yeah. time. I don't know what you got now. Dude, I got more and more friends doing that, man. You don't do that, do you? Mm-hmm. Would you do it? I did do it for years. No, you and you. They do it in their butt. Oh no, man. <laughs> You don't know. You guys know yeah. about this? No. Yeah, a lot I can, of guys, man. I can guess Wait, who you've been hanging out with. Hormones yeah. for like <laughs> listen, muscle growth. Listen, or? I don't want to tell. Oh, you, I'll tell you who later. Mm. He's he's really on the fence about it because he's got friends. What does his testicles look like? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I do. He's got friends, <laughs> and there's a lot of he's got friends. There's a lot of guys that are getting a little capsule. You cut the skin on your butt, and you put this little capsule in there. And then, and then you're you're and then you're and then you're like a you know you're you're uh, whatever you're more of a Superman. This 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 I hope this doesn't take too long. I'll try to make this short. But I you would, wouldn't do that. I would hell. I went to the university. No, but I tell you this: when I was at the University of Georgia in the seventies, uh-huh. uh, steroids were just just a, a rumor, and I, I I heard about them, and I told my guy that I thought Mike could get me some steroids, get me some of that. For you, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he 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 didn't. But I happened to have reproductive physiology that quarter. It was a quarter system back then. And one of the things we did is we had a hundred male chicks, little yellow chicks. You have to have them sex. Somebody got to know what they're doing. These were males, mm-hmm. and we divided them up into ten little pins. It was not good animal welfare. And every day for that quarter, somebody had to inject all 100. You signed up. You know, I'll take these days and you take those days. And, and we didn't know what we were giving them. All of them got the same dosage of whatever whatever was on that bottle on top of their pen. And at the end of the quarter, we killed them and dissected them and weighed their testicles. And I I, I was really starting to want some steroids because those on the end down there, you know, they had a you know the comb had dropped off there. <laughs> oh yeah. And when you when you open the when you open the pen, they come at you. On the other end down there, like souped up chickens. Yeah, they were just still a little yellow. They'd run from you. So I said, oh hell yeah, that's that steroid. I'm gonna get me some of that stuff. I I can't wait. So the last well, I hadn't got it yet. Last day. We killed them and dissected them. And those little birds that run from you on that end, it was different doses all the way up from zero to whatever. The testicles was that big. Those down there that had the comb dripping down, couldn't find them. A little, 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 little gobble of fat that I guess must have been it. So I, said, <laughs> I told my guy. Never no, mind. Cancel that order. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't want to get into this too long, but uh, there's a couple of details I got to add in here about this. Is the guys I know are post reproductive age. I caught wind of this, and I told my wife, "I'm like, listen, if these people that I know do this and they can start smoking me up a hill, I'm gonna have a hard time not doing it." Don't do it. Really? Yeah, I don't want to. You smoked. would? I don't want to get smoked up going up a hill. Is this human growth hormone? Is this steroids? I think it's this... probably testosterone. I could start They're naming testo- people, but I don't want to yeah. name them. But if they can, if it, it turns out that they went from me being able to smoke them up a hill to them smoking me up a hill, 
It's going to be very hard for me to stomach this. Oh, I feel like it's such a a little, little bitch way to go. Just hit the gym a little (laughs) bit more, man. One day you're going to be 70 years old and you think you'll give a damn how quick you get up that hill and and you're going to wish all your stuff was still where it used to be. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health/meateater, but you got to use the promo code meateater. That's promo code meateater, okay? At twc.health slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters makes comparing hunt options easy and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself 
and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's, there's a conversation <laughs> I often have with my kids. Uh, <clears throat> my kids will laugh about you know, we'll laugh about stuff like my, my dad used to love to tell the story that when he was in the mil in the military and you would get your C rations, there'd be three cigarettes in there. Right. And you talk about that. You'd be on a forced March and they would call a cigarette break. Right. And, and then, you know, and we laugh now like, Oh, how stupid. And I'm always telling my kids, I'm like you right now, us right now, we are doing things right now. Maybe some things that we even think are good that your kids will sit and laugh about how in the world could we have been so stupid? Absolutely. What are some of the things that you look at in our agricultural practices? What are some of the things that you look at in the hundred years? I'd be like, can you believe those idiots not only did that, yeah, I used to so I used to artificially artificially inseminate my cattle. Okay. I would buy semen, pay for it, mm-hmm. and and put it in the in the cow when she was in estrus or heat. And the semen I was buying were from these big monster non-natural bulls. You know, they had a you know their claim to fame is they had a, a ribeye that big. And it was like that was the only thing that mattered, <laughs> you know. And today, you know, I, I I close. Not only do I not buy semen anymore, I close the herd. It's a clo- I don't bring animals in now. Mm-hmm. I, I save my own bulls, and I've <clears throat> been doing that for ten years. The herd is so much better, you know. We we put up. You know, you may have. Uh, I I I I, 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 I Get these numbers confused, but a friend of mine uh, had a uh, a herd of a hundred and something, hundred and ten or something cows that he artificially inseminated mm-hmm. with different bulls, and he was se- he was selling bull purebred bull calves, so he had to know who the daddy was. Okay, I don't know did. So he'd take hair from the tail head and send it off, and they. Genetically, sex. Uh, tell, tell me who the the bull was, and he had uh, done that with some natural breeding. Put ten bulls in with a hundred and twenty cows, and and uh, the one bull had like fifty six calves. One had twelve. And then some a four and ones and twos and zeros. Well, now I want the my in my herd. I want the bull that got fifty six calves. I don't care if his ribeye is this big or this big. I want that libido that that you know that bull felt good. He was, <laughs> he was eating well. He was a fish. You know, he, he had it going on. He was a fish. He, yeah, he was the, he, like on the mountain. Around the prairie, or whatever, at a time, like he'd have been the, he'd been the, the standard, standard, si- he'd been si- the standard bearer. Siring si- yeah. si- the buffalo herd or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that, I'm, 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 
I'm telling that story in reference to you about the silly things we do. Uh-huh. And, and there, there are a bunch of others, but, you know, just, that, that was the wrong thing. I was spending money to not improve my herd. To, so that's not so much an issue of, that's not so much an issue of AI. It's an issue of um, the source for the semen, right? No. Well, I mean, you could, uh, yeah. Or those, those I'm, things I'm go hand in hand. AI, I've learned, is artificial intelligence. When I, when I was, it's always been artificial insemination to me. Oh, I still <laughs> think that's what it means. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you look younger than you must be. But in the, the <laughs> argument for it, though, the argument for artificial insemination, as I understand it, you can correct me on this, an argument for it is that you can synchronize, correct? You can synchronize so that your cows are calving within a very narrow window of time. That's two separate things. So, so uh, I'm confusing stuff? Okay. You no, know, I mean, it's all right. I, mean, I get it. But uh, they do use hormone implants to synchronize the cow, and but they could they could still breed them naturally. That's a separate shot. That Okay. Yeah, so... Right. So, uh, so you can use a hormone to bring them into... Estrus or heat. Okay, so that you then... Because they have the same, the gestation period is pretty fixed. 286 days. Okay. So you use a hormone to bring them in at the same time, and then you can breed them naturally or breed them with artificial insemination to make sure that then you're, when it comes to calving time, you have a narrow window, a narrower window of calving time and requires less of your attention to be around to make sure everybody births out. Yeah, but you also part. don't do that, right? I don't. Mm-hmm. So that and and you know it, it does everything you say is true, but mostly people do that so they can put together a truckload of same size, same sex cattle. Sex is still that, that doesn't control sex, but you and that doesn't mean anything to me because we slaughter cows fifty two weeks a year. Uh oh. So that yeah, that's uh, interesting. You've kind of pulled yourself away from that need. Yeah, everything we pulled ourselves away from everything. Yeah, you don't need to have everybody on such and such day always six hundred pounds. Don't want it. <clears throat> don't want it. You know, I want to have calves coming. What we we uh, so we have a a herd where we are, are are finishing our animals on grass, and once a month we shut that herd up and pull out everything visually that we thinks big enough was ready to slaughter uh-huh. and that's how we do it and I, I don't, I don't want to have all of them one month and 11 months nothing going on does anybody hunt on your farm yeah I, I did employees hunt I was I was an avid hunter all my life that that, that and uh, uh, ceased to do that when I got so involved with my career and uh, I still have employees that hunt uh that's funny you mentioned that because I was like being brought up. Um, we hunted different farms in our community, mm-hmm. and my dad was <laughs> he was just in explaining why. I mean, at that time, farmers didn't hunt. I mean, they did not hunt in our area. My dad's like, the last thing these people want to deal with is a dead animal. <laughs> he's like, he's like, it's just like the at the end of the day, he want to go out and have another dead thing. You know, what you got to mess with because it's just not like a fun thing for him. You well, that, the, the way that worked in, in my community growing up is when when we were kids, we were avid hunters and fishermen and trappers because that's what you did. You know, my my dad didn't know how to play baseball. He, he wasn't going to be able to tell me how to, you know, he, that, 
wouldn't something happen. So the way we kids spent our time was, and the television was a black and white television about that big, and I'm going to watch that. So we hunted and fished and trapped. And at a certain age, your daddy said, you coming with me tomorrow. 10, 12, 14, depends on the kid and the daddy. And then you were working. And, you know, I mean, I, it wasn't that I didn't have time to hunt or fish. I did. I just had my interest. Just, just, and, and Oh, you mean when he said you're coming with me, he meant working. Yeah. Not hunting. Yeah. He's pulling you off hunting. He's correct. He, oh, uh, he's pulling you off of yeah, hunting and yeah. fishing to get working. Yeah. And I, I could still have hunted and fished. Yeah. But I, I, I. By that time, I wanted to run the farm. That was yep. that was my, my 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 goal. When you look at, uh, I don't, I know you, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to embarrass you, but you've been public about how many acres you guys have yeah. under control. Do you yeah. mind sharing? No, uh, we own about two thousand acres. <clears throat> I inherited about a thousand acres. I bought about a thousand acres. Okay. Uh, we rent a little over a thousand acres. And then we graze solar voltaic arrays about two thousand acres, so it's a little over five thousand acres total. Um, as you've gone through this process, and have you seen what? What have you seen in terms of wildlife? Um, you had, you had the dung beetle example, mm-hmm. but what have you seen in terms of wildlife habitat? Does it wind up? <clears throat> decreasing because you need to use so much because you found ways to use so much more of the landscape, meaning your goats and sheep have replaced deer, you know? Yeah, uh, that's, a good, that's a good question. And, uh, and but I, the, the wildlife has increased, but then and the sportsman in you is not going to like this much. When you manage for the benefit of a species, you do so at the detriment of the other species. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't see many deer on our farm. A lot of them pass through because it's open. You know, they, they're on their way somewhere else. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of life on the farm. I started to mention this to you. I was, I was driving down a, a paved road that bisects my farm uh, three or four years ago. And it, it, it wasn't, it was late in the afternoon, I'm dusk, but it wasn't rain, raining. And I went through a place that I, the road was wet. I said, what was that? And I backed up and there were millions of little toad frogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, fresh hatched toad frogs crossing the road. And since then, I've seen that probably three, for two or two, maybe three other times. And that is... I hadn't seen that since I was a kid. No. I, I can back you up on this. That's changed everywhere. That what? I, mean, I said I can back you up on that, like amphibians. Yeah. It's just changed. But but yeah. I got, what I'm saying to you is I got them. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm, and, no, I'm and, here. And, they, and they've been gone and they're back. Yeah. You know, I was raised frog gigging and catching crawfish and, and you know, the other things. The amphibians, you're right. Amphibians are like the canary in the coal mine, you know, to, to, to the indicator that it ain't right. Mm-hmm. And they're back on my farm. That's got to be from so a diminishment so we, of the sides. We right? had 78 bald eagles on my farm. They were killing me. They were eating my chickens. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I mean, it, 
I told you, we, chickens have not been a good deal for us. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's not even counting this. But uh, there was 78, that's the, D, the DNR guy made that estimate. I don't know how you tell, but that was what he said. There's a bunch of them. And they were about to put me out of the chick poultry, pasture poultry business. And we are uh, very. Because you got your chickens running around out in the open. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, you know, it's not like a, an eagle would go in there and get a bird and eat it. I, I, don't, I don't mind that. That's like tithing to nature. You, know, you, you do that. Yeah. But they would land and just kill and kill and kill and eat the anus out and kill another one and eat the anus and kill another one. And huh. So a, a very talented uh, poultry manager that I had hired figured it out, and our eagle losses went way down. So he, he, uh, we, we fenced them. So I have guardian dogs, uh, Anatolian Shepherds and Akbosh and Great Pyrenees and combinations thereof. And they work great on nocturnal predation. But in the daytime, they go to the woods and go to sleep. And that's when the eagles come. So my poultry guy figured out how to put up that electrified webbing around the poultry house. Mm -hmm. So they can still get out, but they can't. The dogs, it wasn't to keep the chickens in, it was to keep the dogs from going to the woods. Oh, <laughs> and and it was it was it was very efficacious. So he was fencing his dog, fencing the dogs literally, in, literally, and it worked it worked very well. We still have some eagles and some predation, but it's not debilitating the way it was. Yeah. So how? Uh, tell me about the process of doing your book. <sighs> Did you write it? Yeah. Uh, so uh, the. Mark. Mark Gerald, yeah. Yeah. Uh, contacted me about, solicited writing a book about us. Did he make you do a proposal and all that? He didn't? Huh. Hmm. interesting. No. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> he, uh, so I mean, when I, we, we, I talked to him the first time. Uh-huh. I told him, I said, I can't write a book. Yeah. You know, I've. I, that's not the way that works. I had never read many books. And he uh, ultimately found a, a wonderful person to, to write it, a young lady named Amy Lee Graven, who we well, all— I know her. Yeah. We fell in love with her. She's a sweetheart. Yeah. She's about the same age as my daughters. And and uh, and my daughter got involved in it, and she wanted the book, so she— I worked for my daughter, so I— So then you were able to start <laughs> downloading all your knowledge and— we we had a phone call every Friday afternoon for two, three, four hour phone call, and she's brilliant. You know, she would uh, have a list of questions. She start asking her questions, and she would challenge you. I'd say I'd be telling them a story, responded to whatever she had asked about, and she'd say, "Wait a minute, you told me so and so." I said, mm, "I didn't say that." She said, "On July fifth, you told me." <laughs> she, you know, she, getting cross-examined yeah i see yeah that ain't the same thing i, I, I told you you know it was different you know yeah. she uh-huh. said, but she uh, uh she you know she 
when I read the book, I couldn't believe how right she got it. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it re, I mean, it's like, it's like you're telling the stuff. It's all my stuff. But yeah, she, I just she, didn't know if you needed someone to help you with the organization. Yeah. That's back on that linear cyclical. Yeah. If I start telling you a story, I'm probably going to get off on something else. Probably, <laughs> we, know we'll, we know we'll finish that one unless you remind me. And, that, and that, that's the way this would have been. Um, how many people come, you know, because how, how many people come to your place every day? Like, like if people are listening, they can just go, to, if they're in Georgia, they can just go to your place, right? We do. And tour and yeah. eat mm-hmm. and see everything. We, uh, we got an open gate policy that you can go. We, we do tours, we, you know, and I, and I really rather them do that. But, you know, they you can't, you know, they, they show up 30 minutes after you did a tour and my daughters do them. And they got people that, that work with them to do them. But they, we, we let them go in. We got maps. We give it to you. You can go anywhere you want to. You can ask anything you want to. You know, you know we, uh, we're under so much competition of green-washed product by big companies that transparency is the, the sword we've got to use. Got you. Show it to them. You can look at it. You know, we'll, we'll ask you a question. And sometimes... Meaning there's no, like, whatever terminology you can use to describe to a consumer what it is you're doing, you're going to see that terminology mimicked by someone who picks up that word. Absolutely. Let me give you an extreme example. Okay. I've got several I'll give you. But, uh, in this country... You can import grass-fed beef from 20 other countries mm-hmm. and label it product of the USA legally on the, on the package. If value is added here, it's cut or wrapped or ground. Is that right? Yeah. Man, if you want to put product of the USA on a piece of sewn <laughs> fabric, I know. sure shit's a lot higher bar than that, man. Well, I'm telling you, they, they, the law got changed. I think it was 2015. Hmm. We were doing pretty good. And uh, the law got changed, and then suddenly, you know, we're not doing so good anymore. But huh. we, had a, we had a big wholesale customer last week that my daughter was talking to, and uh, they had a I wasn't in the meeting, had a, a, a video meeting, online meeting. They showed, you know, the stats on how much they'd grown and new customer they picked up, and this this grocer, that grocer, the other grocer. They got down to the uh, plan, said they're going to buy the same amount of product from us they bought the previous year. And then Jenny, she's pretty tough, she said, wait a minute. You just showed all these new customers you got, and you're going to buy the same amount of product. Where are you getting it? Because there aren't that many large grass-fed beef producers left in this country. Mm-hmm. And they didn't say anything. And she just sat there and waited. And she said, are, are you importing grass-fed beef? And they didn't say anything. And finally, one of them said, yeah, yeah, okay, we import a little bit. <laughs> so <laughs> why hadn't we talked about this before? Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and I could tell you the name. Because they're, chasing, and you, and they're heard, chasing that name, grass-fed beef, 
not chasing the implica- like what the implications well, they, are. But they, they let the assumption be it's American. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they are an American. It's got a very American name, headquartered in Texas. You know, it's a very. Got you it. Know. Do you do you um do you worry that the whole thing's going to go kaput and someone's going to have to go back the other direction? It's going. It's, it, 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 yes, and uh, I I I worry about it a lot, and. Uh, I really think we're okay. I mean, White Oak Pass, we've been doing it longer than the others. We started 25 years ago. We sell $25 million worth of stuff a year. We're vertically integrated. We, we, it could, we're not doing very well, but it's okay. You know, we got, uh, we got, we got some debt, but we got a lot of assets. And I think we're going to be okay. I got friends and, and, and people I care a lot about. That it has not been okay, and that bothers me a lot. I thought, not not day one. Day one, I just want to raise cows different. But at some point in that journey, I I came to believe that I was an early innovator mm-hmm. that was helping figure out a, a better way to to produce at least beef, maybe maybe meat in general, but at least beef. And, and I liked that. I wasn't living for it, but I liked it. It's not. It hadn't worked out that way. The and and, and I I changed. I went from uh, I've never been a salesman. I've never tried to talk people into changing up. But if somebody came to see me and said, "I'm thinking about going in the grass fed beef business," I said, "Get in the jeep. Come on, I'll show you something." And I show them and and kind of promote it. And I I consciously consciously made the decision I got to quit doing that because mm. your people got in trouble and then it could happen with us but we're in you know I mean I, I think we'll be alright enough enough. I allowed two daughters to come back and have babies on the farm so I thought you know I'm not, you know, if you're in business for yourself you never I know this is going to be fine that, that doesn't happen you know what the sad part is there'd be a bunch of people happy if it didn't work because they're sitting there and it's like man this is kind of challenging the here he is talking about a bunch of stuff i'd rather not talk about drawn making us you know people questioning assumptions and then if it didn't work they'd be like ha good you're right because that was getting uncomfortable <laughs> and the, of course of course the you know the large multinational meat mm. processors are so Big and so powerful, and and we're you know, they're, not, they're not worried about how much I sell. They spill more than I sell. Yeah, but they don't want people asking the questions. And we we talk a lot about how we do it. And it needs to be better. Not have to talk about that. So, and they've done a, such a great job. Again, that that term greenwashing, I, I didn't come up with it, but I use it a lot because it very accurately depicts what happens in the marketplace years ago i had a um we were interviewing a bison producer and that's kind of a in the west that's a little bit of a touchy subject like beef versus bison Mm. um and they were talking he's talking about a lot of the heat they get you know the cattle end of things Mm. um and he had an interesting statistic where he's like, man, there's 2 million 
cows in this state. I got 4,000 buffalo. (laughs) But the amount of the focus on that is like, like, let's just look at the numbers for a minute here. I don't don't have that prejudice, but I got got, uh, 150-something miles of fence on my farm Uh because we got it cross-fenced into 30-acre paddocks. It's Mm -hmm. not just... And uh, when... And I used to be the president of the American Grassfield Association way back a long time ago. And the bison producers in there. And those poor folks couldn't hardly give away bison. But I started Tez Montana Grill and seeing other things. I said, you know, I believe this bison thing might might be all right. And I was adding those other species. I said, maybe I'll add bison. So there was a guy in Alabama had a herd of bison he wanted to sell. I rode up there by myself one Sunday afternoon, and I, I didn't want to talk to him. I wanted to look at them. And I, I sat there and looked at those bison, and I looked at that fence he had. <laughs> I looked, looked like something from a prison. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I'm too old to start building 150-something miles of fence. <laughs> I, I still I still owe money from the first time I built this. I, don't, I, don't, I can't start back over again. Yeah, it reminded me of going seeing Daddy. <laughs> Not really. Well, man, I do. Uh, one, I hope your book does good. A bold return. I want to make sure I get the a title. Bold, right. A bold. Re- I want to get the subtitle. A bold return to giving a damn. One farm, six generations in the future of food, by Will Harris from White Oak pastures i hope your book does good well, it's, it's really it's really interesting um it, it's a it's an interesting informative read from someone who observes ag agriculture from the outside and um that's me right like i spent a lot of time on farms and ranches I have friends at farm and ranch but i didn't that's not how i grew up um i just grew up in proximity to it so there's always more to learn I think from a perspective of obviously consumers, um, you know, uh, we we catch or shoot all the meat we eat, but most people in this country buy meat, so it's a great window into what you're buying, the history of what you're buying, what you're paying for when you buy it. Um, reading the book too, just when you're driving down the road and you're looking out the window and you're driving through farm country. You'll be like, oh, that's why that's that way. Um, it's just you learn a lot about about food production, and then you also learn a lot about um, when you're when you're looking at farms and ranches how to kind of interpret what it is you're seeing, and when you're looking at those price discrepancies, um, when you're looking at those price discrepancies in the grocery store attra- uh, attached to different descriptors, why that might look the way it looks because. There's a point, like you said, with chicken, you know, I mean, there's a point you're going to, someone's going to walk in, a consumer's going to walk in and they're going to see, you know, chickens on sale for like a buck a pound <laughs> or there's like, well, how, why is this hoser selling his chicken for $8 a pound or whatever the hell it is? Um, I'm not telling you, I don't, I don't know how you're going to break on that buying decision, but at least you won't feel like it's robbery. You'll feel like, oh, that's for that. That's where that money goes. Like that's why that's that way. Well, there's a lot wrong with the way we produce food in this country, sadly. And I was part of that. My my dad was part of the leadership, and my <clears throat> made the decision to, to to 
to, to go another way and have really been pleased with the results. But re ready to admit that the financial benefit is not going to make room for a lot of people to do it. it, it it's sad. Uh, I, I hope that changes. I don't know whether it will or not. In this book, I tried to be as clear and honest on that as I knew how to be. And uh, people have to make their own decisions. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 um, I mean, even just talking to you today, you're, uh, I'll tell you one thing you're not, you ain't a huckster. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Like, you seem pretty, you seem pretty open to the trade offs. Yeah. You're not, oh, yeah. you know, but I, I think that if we had more time, I think we would get into, and probably good just touch on it for a minute. I mean, there's also a gamble here, and 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 you explain that if when people look at regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture, whatever, and you can make the claim like, well, you, how are you going to feed eight billion people on that? And you raise some questions like, uh, I don't know that we should feed eight billion people, um, and the Earth has. It's not debatable. There is a carrying, the earth has a carrying capacity. There's a point at which the earth will not support some number. Correct. And there's going to be a limiting factor on how many people the earth can feed. If it winds up being that the limiting factor is acreage, traditional in, industrialized farming mm. is going to be the way to go. If the limiting factor winds up being soil, water, on and on and on, um, we're gonna have to rethink shit. No, you know, it's just like like what is gonna be the thing we run out of? Yeah, you know the the the, the there's so many losers in the food production system that we have now. <clears throat> I've been criticized for being critical of other farmers, and I really don't intend to be. They they came up in an industrial food production system and embraced it and got good at it and have taken risk and, and, and that's the way they produce food and they see nothing wrong with it and I didn't either. <clears throat> but there are, there are downsides and there are risks and there are problems with it and they're environmental. You know, I don't even talk about health and safety and all that. I, I talk about the things I know about which are environmental, animal welfare, in the, the rural economy. And the way we've been producing food since World War II has been devastating in those three areas. Some other things, too, but I don't get into that. That's, that's not my expertise. So, you know, should we produce food differently? I think we should. Are we going to? I think we are sooner or later. I it's going to be forced on us at some point. I don't know how, how bad it's got to get. You know, they... You know, the uh, uh, I quit using the term organic because you can legally have certified organic vegetables grown in a house with artificial lights and hygroponically high no soil. It's certified organic. Now, there's a lot wrong with that. And we could, we could go down a whole long list of things that we do that are 
I think, disingenuous and wrong and and damaging and, and, and unhealthy, dot, dot, dot. But until the consumer decides to change it, change won't come from the government. Change won't come from big multinational corporations. Change won't come from land-grant universities. I, I, can, I can give you a bunch of other places change won't come from. <laughs> the if USDA. It, <laughs> USDA. If change occurs, it'll be because of consumers. And, and, it won't, and it won't happen with consumers until things get really bad. I mean, the food costs more. I mean, my food costs more. I hate that. I, 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 I do. But I can't help it. You wish it was cheap. Oh, I wish I, you know, a question I hate is I can be telling people, a group of people, what I think we ought to do to farm to make food better for the land and the animal and the climate and rural communities and whatever else. And, and think I did a good job. And they say, but what are you going to do about all the people that are starving? How about you handling that? <laughs> I got a good idea. Let that be your project. You know, I'll correct it a bunch of stuff. You take you take that one. I I don't know. And I you know I'm as I'm as sensitive about people being hungry as anybody else. But the fact is, I simply don't have that answer. I I I, I wrote down all the answers I had in this book, and it's a great start. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I, I, I can't solve world hunger, world peace either. Yeah. Man, I hope you, I mean, it's a great book, but I hope you're keeping more detailed notes too because if this all, uh, <laughs> you know, if in 100 years, people are like, holy shit, we should have listened to that guy from Georgia. <laughs> I hope he wrote something down. 18 inches of peanut shells, dead cow. Yeah, I, 18 <laughs> I give you my word. I hadn't written much down. I, I promise you that. How do how do I identify a dung beetle when you see one? Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show, and thanks for doing the book. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. This is fun. Uh, you're gonna hate me because because uh, but what is what is the pub date? September last September last September. Mm-hmm. Scrub that out, Phil. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I had it right with available now. Oh yeah, it's very very available now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if you don't if you don't believe it. <laughs> available. Get it anywhere. Get it anywhere books are sold. Bold return to giving a damn. One farm, six generations in the future of food, Will Harris. If you get into the acknowledgments, you'll see our good friend Mark Gerald listening to the acknowledgments. Mark's a good guy. But don't don't everybody go send to Mark your uh proposals. Don't yeah, don't send them all your proposals. <laughs> It's just, I don't know. I don't know if he digs around. You know, in publishing lingo, they call that the slush pile. <laughs> and 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 I don't know that they, I can't make any promises <laughs> that he's going to dig around through his mail and find your stuff. So if you don't hear from him, it's not that it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> it might just be that he never looked. <laughs> All right, Will, thank you, man. And uh, White Oak Pastures, they go on your website, obviously, right? Whiteoakpastures.com. Making an order? Yes. Yes. They can go down there. They can look around. Please come. And they can tour the compost site? 
Absolutely. <laughs> I might go in there and you, you might see me out there kicking through those peanut shells trying to find out <laughs> yeah. what exactly is going on under there. Everybody, everybody wants to see it. I mean, I tell you, it's, it's beautiful. The grass is just high. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's really? Beautiful. Yeah, it's great. A lot of, a lot of possums. You know. He's going to want to We've talked about there. that. We, we, uh, if you keep it, if you keep it covered, it, it's incredible how few possums, bobcats, raccoons, hmm. uh, very, very few. Well, yeah, if there's no Steve vultures, if, uncover if, it if there's no vultures, if there's no vultures, I believe it. But yeah, all right, thank you very much for coming on, and uh, everybody, go check out the book. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. All. Sun is rising, light up the coast, making a stand all day. Case alone, star my old over under 700 second hand plays. Run the dogs to the northwest corner of the creek if the water ain't down. When the season comes, we'll find some place to hunt them. Lord, they're gonna miss this ground. We're selling the farm in the morning. In the fence, and I wish somebody could tell me in a way that it all made sense. Whoa, we're raising hell tonight, even if it's the very last time. She cried. I hear old Bert Young, who looks after the land, went to sleep last night and he died. Adios to the farm and the we made in the mud We'll be leaving a lifetime behind us A generation of Texas blood Whoa, we're raising hell tonight Even if it's the very last time So much for the good days There's a new bunch of deer in the bottom to my daughters and sons Don't know how I'm gonna make up the memory I won't stop till I'm done Don't know what time we gotta leave here tomorrow Don't know what I'm gonna say It's too damn hot for a bonfire tonight But we're gonna be burning one anyway We're selling the farm in the and the snakes and the hogs It's a world that's passing from memory Except in a couple of sad old songs Whoa, we're raising hell tonight Even if it's the very last time Don't give up on the good days
This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need, and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to MontanaCastingCo.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. 